everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Inflated Expectations. Today, I'm joined by Anthony Crudelli, a 22-year futures veteran, CME member, and host of Futures Radio, where he talks with traders, CEOs, and other market participants about trading, investing, and all things going on in the macro economy. Hope you guys enjoy it. Quick BlockWorks-related announcement. But from August 11th to August 13th of this year, BlockWorks is hosting its Bretton Woods The Realignment event at the historic Bretton Woods location in New Hampshire. It's going to be a macro-focused event filled with the best macroeconomists, investors, and macro analysts talking about the future of finance. Uh, so if you want to attend and you know get your tickets at a discounted price, click the link in the description or use the code inflated at checkout. Hope to see you there. Hello, Anthony. Thanks for coming today. What's up, Allison? Thanks for having me. Now, the tables have turned a little bit. Last time we chatted, I think I was on your podcast in my kitchen. Now, I'm still in the kitchen, but <laughs> you're yeah. online. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk with you today. I love what you're doing with your podcast, and I'm excited to talk a little bit more about crypto. Yeah, awesome, and thanks so much for coming. I just got back from a, a trip to France and Italy. While I was there, they changed the COVID requirements, and so I had a little trouble, thought I wasn't going to make it back. Luckily, made it back in time for, <laughs> for this. Um, but with this surging Delta variant... Um, a lot of people are talking about, you know, what's going to happen with the markets? Are we going to head into another lockdown? And so I just want to get your opinion on where you think we're going with all this. I don't think the U.S. is going to go back into another lockdown. I think there will be some mask mandates and things like that again. But when I heard President Biden talking the other day about how great the economy is going, I just don't see them holding that back. I, I just don't. I, I know that they are really talking more and more about masks. That's what I keep hearing. And, you know, they obviously they want more people to get vaccinated. I just don't see, I just don't see a lockdown coming. I think it'll be in certain areas. I'm in Florida. I do not de see DeSantis doing anything here, to be quite honest with you. There might be some local mask mandates again, which is fine. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't see lockdowns. Yeah, I, I I think I agree with you on that. It's interesting because I'm in Virginia and they've already taken down like the mask required signs and anywhere I go, people are pretty much still still unmasked. But um, I think I had a lot of questions coming in on Twitter, even just talking about like market anticipation, given what we saw last year, last March or well, I guess now it's two Marches ago in 2020 when the pandemic first hit. Um, but do you think that we would even see as strong of a reaction as we saw last year or that it's just we've been dealing with this for so long that maybe people are kind of accustomed to it? In the bull market that we have right now, I look at it from my perspective because that's all I can, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I am in some things, you know, the S&P is in my longer portfolio, and this is on the investment side, not the trading side. I want to sell something because it's one of those things where I own some S&P, I own Apple, I've got a lot of stuff in my investment account that I look at it and go, I'm looking for a reason to sell. I think that in, if the cases start to really amp up and I start to see some failure of holding some technicals, I think you will start to see people come in. I mean, it's just human nature, right? I mean, these bull markets are so difficult to trade and invest in and to know when to sell that I think that People nowadays look for more of these headlines and these bear markets, well, even if you want to call them that, are so quick that I think that you could see some selling. I don't think it would be much. Uh, I don't see much more than a 10 to 15% correction this year coming at all. I don't think it would be anything like we saw in the past. I think that people now um, would not react like that. But I do think that when you get markets as strong as they are, they just get sensitive and all of a sudden you start to see maybe a small failure in technicals and sell can come in quickly and I think it would be quick and done. That's just what I think. Yeah, I agree with you there and I'm sure a lot of people will feel <laughs> relieved back at home hearing that. Um, but so you mentioned you know stuff like the S&P and so just for a little bit more background on you, I know you're a veteran trader and so... And for the people at home, like he didn't leave TradFi, obviously, to, to come to the crypto side. But what was this sort of transition like from being someone who was, you know, completely focused on, on TradFi things and, and moving into crypto? Yeah, my entire background has been trading the S&P 500 futures. I was one of the first electronic traders of the product, the E-mini product. And that's how I made my living, you know. And I would say over the last six to seven years, I've gotten more into like a swing trader type mentality. And crypto just fits more into, I think... My style of trading now, I want to be able to buy things I think that have great upside. <laughs> Obviously, everybody thinks that way, but when I look at it from a trading perspective, I've moved a lot of my trading capital into crypto because 
I just see opportunity there. I mean, I feel like since the Fed has gotten so involved in into the markets uh, that it's become so much more difficult as a futures trader to trade the S&P, especially intraday. I mean, that's why I said in my longer term stuff, I sit on it and hold it. And I'm very thankful for what the Fed has done. But I think mm. as a trader, we always look at it as what's how can we manage our risk with a great amount of upside? So I looked at a lot of the people in my industry, the derivatives industry, the futures industry, and I, and I go, I've been going to trade shows and future shows for a long time. And throughout the past six or seven years, I've seen some of the top people in the derivatives industry getting into crypto. Don Wilson, I mean, he's a legend in the future space. Now he's a legend in the crypto space. I mean, the guys, I mean, DRW, most people know who that is. Uh, you know, I look at Haymeyer, who was a mentor of mine. Uh, Chris Haymeyer, some people may not know who he is, but he's just a futures legend that is all crypto now. And when I see people like that doing that, that piques my interest. They're smarter than me. They have more money than me. They understand things better than I do. I've never been the smartest guy in the room, but I looked around and say, when people like that are getting into a line to do something, I want to get in that line. So that's why I started. And that transition, I don't know if you want to talk technically how it's changed me for me, but I mean, we could definitely discuss that if you want. Yeah, you could totally jump into the, the even the technical sort of side of things. What I would look at with crypto is my range of execution got so much bigger than it ever was in trading futures. Futures is a lever, leveraged product anyway, but even for stocks for that matter. The volatility in crypto and the way of my execution, it was really a, a massive learning curve for me um, because you're not used to something moving as fast as much. Uh, you're not used to these. We talked about an S&P correction. I said 10 to 15%, right? And some people are like, whoa, that could be massive. You look at Ethereum or Bitcoin, that's an afternoon. Uh, so thinking in terms of percentages and just in terms of volatility, it was hard for me to gauge how I take my strategy and move that into a crypto one. So now I just basically layered it. And what I do is I found the ones that I really like and I wait for them to really just get crushed and I step in and buy them. And when they start to go uh, through trial and error, you know, just scale out and try to keep a small core position in the entire time. And it's just so different than what I, I don't really have any price targets because I think that they're so difficult to look at. I mean, on the, on the time horizon that I'm looking at, I mean, I look at Ethereum was my biggest holding. And if I would have had any price targets that I would have had uh, when it went up to 42, 4300, I would have covered it way earlier. I didn't cover it at the top, but I covered it on the way down. Um, but it, it, that type of mentality is so different than when you're trading something like gold or oil or S&P. Uh, you know, you look at it and you could gauge a range. Crypto, it, it's almost impossible to do that. I mean, I have, you hard, it's hard to have that imagination to see that. So I've now just expanded and said, look it, this is the kind of market that you're going to trade. You have to trade according to what this market is. I'm not going to impose my will on it. I have to adjust to what this is. And like I said, that's what I'm doing. And, and one thing I want to talk about is, is that I look at a lot of crypto charts. And the one thing that I think about with crypto is, is why I only trade a few of them now. They almost all look the same to me. And I think this is the biggest problem that crypto has, is that if everything is going to be tied to Bitcoin or Ethereum, now I understand that because of the pairs. I mean, I think that the liquidity behind these other cryptos, a lot of that is tied to this Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I, and I get that. But I have seen some of the ones that I really like, I think that are very interesting and they fall out of bed and they get crushed just because Bitcoin's going down. I think that's a problem that eventually needs to be solved. And which is at this point now, why I almost only am trading Ethereum and some NFTs and and just some other DeFi stuff that I'm in because I feel like if I'm going to buy any one of these, it almost is like it, the same chart. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I and I think it's talked about quite often in the in the crypto industry in general and crypto Twitter. Everybody talks about alt season, and then the second that Bitcoin starts to tank, so do all the the altcoins. And it's very interesting to get your perspective though, because I think a lot of people that I've had on inflated expectations have come from the sort of uh, in it for the tech meme <laughs> background uh, where people are in it for, you know, the long term benefits they see in it sort of replacing monetary regimes. And a lot of people are just, you know, they're holding for the long run and not really trading it necessarily, but just, you know, the the hodling meme and, and waiting until, you know, it's it's more integrated into um, our financial systems. So I guess kind of going along with that, you talked about what sparked your interest in it. But now has that 
changed at all over time? Like, do you, um, have you seen it progress past the point of just an asset class? And, you know, do you see it becoming this, you know, world reserve currency or even just becoming used more as a currency? I believe the future is going to be in crypto. There's almost no doubt in my mind that will be the case. And getting back to the hodling type thing, I look at it like this. My job is to make money. You know, investor, trader, that's what I do. I try to hodl things, okay? And I see them come back, like I said, a huge percentages, and I'm going, that's not going to work. I mean, for me, I need to continue to be able to grow the amount of money I have. So if there's other opportunities that come up in the crypto space, I don't want to be so tied and fixated on this initial investment that this is the only thing I'm in and hoping that it goes to X amounts of thousands uh, in price. So I, I've had to take some off and, and do that in order to be able to invest more in the crypto space. So I think that I wouldn't necessarily say that I am trading this stuff the way I would trade S&P crude oil or gold. Different. I'm holding them and I'm having them force me to get out and also force me to get in. So I'm like a half hodler, half, you know, like if Ethereum were to just keep grinding up and never really come down, I wouldn't get out. But when all of a sudden it crash, it gets cracked from 4,300 and it starts failing to hold some technicals, I'm like, I got to raise some money again. And then it allowed me to buy it back uh, at different prices and it allowed me to buy some NFTs and just do some different things. So I'm actually trying to build a portfolio of crypto. So I do believe in it to the point to where I want to continue to invest in the crypto space, but how much do I take from my futures account? How much do I take from my stock account? How much do I take from that? So what I'm trying to do is grow it within the crypto ecosystem. So I do believe it's the future. I do believe that I don't know how much of an impact it will have in a time horizon. I couldn't guess that. But I do believe it is the future. I do believe that crypto is here to stay and will only get bigger. Yeah, I think those are all really good points. And so you talked a bit about NFTs. And yeah. uh, obviously the past week, that we, there's been sort of an NFT craze again with the punks. punks. And yeah, every, yeah. Everything's, <laughs> everything's going a little crazy. Uh, also kind of correlated with Bitcoin, you know, surging up past 40K again. Um, but do you want to talk a bit about that? Maybe your interest in the NFT space and what you're doing within that ecosystem? So what I started to do a couple of months ago is I got involved in Z.run. Have you ever even heard uh, of that? Oh, the horse one. Yes. Yes. So I started <laughs> yeah. buying horses. I'm not, I didn't buy any of the punks. I looked at some of those prices. I was kind of like, man, I hope this happens with the horses I bought. But anyway, I bought some horses because what I saw in the Z.run, which I have not seen in other NFTs, and maybe you know you could tell me that I'm wrong by not seeing this anywhere else, is that I bought... So I bought a certain type of horses. I bought Z1, Nakamoto, Genesis horses, right? And you could actually breed them. Uh, and you get revenue back in ETH that, you know, you could go and then buy other horses. You just, it, it's like, it's actually paying me back. It's, I don't want to say it's like a dividend stock, or it's, but it's, it's actually giving me money back. It's paying me back. And I looked at the ecosystem and I said, this is interesting. I mean, we talked about lockdowns a little bit. I think this is something that is going to potentially be the future of horse racing. I mean, let's face it. Look at what we look at the conversations going on around the world right now, where uh, environment, right? We talk about you know ESG, all these different things that are, are going to be in the future of investing. I look at this and say, this could be big. So I looked at it and said, can I get my money back? Where where am I getting out of this? Like if I because these horses were not cheap, and right. when I <laughs> yeah, yeah I've seen yeah yeah I bought them and I and you know I've got a small little stable now, and I look at it and go how could I start generating income off of this? And I've been able to do that. So I look at that and say I think that there's a game to be played here. And you know so I I, I once again I evaluated and said I want to have a portfolio of crypto. So I had some ETH at the time that I was looking at going, you know what? This is kind of my long-term holding of ETH right now. What do I do with this? And I didn't want to stake it. Uh, I didn't feel that the staking was, um, I think it was, we got to come up with 32 of them, right? Um, and I didn't, want to, I, I didn't want to do that. I said, maybe let me look at something else. And a friend of mine mentioned this and I looked into it and I said, that makes sense to me. As a trader, as an investor, Z.run makes sense. And since I've been in it, it just keeps growing and growing. I bought a horse today. 
<laughs> and oh, I, really? Yeah. And what's cool is I buy the unnamed fo- uh, files. Uh, and I'm probably, I, I don't know if it's a foal or a foul. It's a foal, yeah. It's a foal, right? <laughs> See? That's right. You love horses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now I know why you know Zed.run. Um, and this kind of fits right into to you and knowing horses and, and how this works. And and so I bought it and I was able to name the horse. I, I don't know. I just feel like there's a connection to it where I look at it and go, this could be big. And it's just, so I started buying them. Uh, so now I have a horse buying problem. <laughs> it's it, me too, but with the real ones. <laughs> with the real ones. <laughs> but it was funny to me. I mean, I would have never imagined, you know, that one day I would be talking, I would be getting my economics degree to talk about, you know, cryptocurrency and digital horses. But <laughs> it, it is, it's very interesting because I think even when you look at things like the horse racing industry, right? And you look at things like, you know, those very extra attempts by PETA to end it or exactly. just the shifting, you know, demographic in general of, of, of people sort of getting away from, from racing. But the, um, the idea of these like online games as well, because it is, you know, that, that sort of game exactly. betting, like a betting market game in a sense. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very interesting. And I think with stuff like Zed Run, there's a lot of room for, you know, other companies to sort of come in and try to, you know, use that model because it is something that can garner attention and popularity. And it's something fun. Like you said, you get to, you know, you breed these horses and you feel this like connection to like, oh, look, totally. I, you know. And so it's interesting because it gives people that opportunity, you know, especially with lockdowns being bored at home to do something more creative uh, but also, you know, generate these revenues. It's just funny to me because it is, it is a horse thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but is there anything else like that in the NFT space that's actually interactive like this where there is, like we talked about the breeding and the gaming aspect of it? I believe there's there's other gaming sort of things, but I, I haven't seen anything this sort of intense, but I could be wrong too. I'm not as in into the uh, nft space but as far as i know and like zed run is is one of is pretty much like the staple <laughs> horse racing breeding you know digital game betting market sort of things <laughs> yeah and you know what's interesting about it another thing i look at is so when i bought the horses and i bought them in eth you know you have to go into wrapped mm-hmm. eth and you go in you do that and what was interesting is that i saw the price of eth moving but it wasn't moving much on zed.run so I was like, okay, I paid X amount of ETH for this horse, and ETH is now down 20% uh, you know, afterwards. The price stayed relatively the same, same on the way up. It's, it's, what was interesting to me is that I took my ETH and I said, look it, this is a way for me to get some more ETH back. And then also in the long run, if ETH goes up, it's a way for me to carry my position without looking at it and you know, saying, do I ever want to sell this? Do I not? And I'm engaging in it, and if the price goes up, the horses go up in value. I'm actually getting that in ETH too. So there's like, it's a way of having, I'm a big believer in Ethereum, as you can tell uh, from every, most of the stuff I'm doing is in that. And so I felt like that was another reason why I looked at it as an, an investment, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that's how a lot of the NFT community is sort of looking at NFTs in general is that they're these things that go up in value because Ethereum is going up in value, but they're also, you know, they are also sort of had this value on their own, um, you know, based on the scarcity of the art or of the horse or, or whatnot. It's just interesting to see this sort of real life tie to like, you know, racehorses are assets in real life. And now they're also <laughs> digital assets. Oh yeah. And it's addicting. If anybody goes on there, you could just go onto the homepage and you could see it and you look at it in 3d. It reminds me of Tron. <laughs> it reminds me of the movie Tron where like I'm listening to the music and I'm like, Man, I feel like, That's funny. am I going to be in this game one day? Like, Tron is freaking weird. That's funny. Yeah, I used to play, when I was young, I used to play like a horse game, which was very similar, except there was no money to be made. You just, you know, raised bred horses and, and whatnot. So it's definitely funny to see. Oh, my goodness. But so on a related topic with sort of these, like, you know, what you could call a horse, I guess, a, a physical asset <laughs> in, in yeah. terms of, you know, racing and whatnot. Everybody loves comparing Bitcoin and other cryptos to gold. Uh, I was actually at the Ethereum conference two weeks ago in Paris, and I talked about this and, you know, this new digital gold standard and and whatnot, and whether or not that's even sort of an accurate comparison. Um, but as a veteran trader, as you are, um, could you talk a bit about maybe the similarities and differences you see between the two? Because I think there's a lot of maybe misconceptions in that space. I don't compare the two. Mm-hmm. And I really don't because I look at them. There's one thing I've learned in my career. I remember growing up in the business and building a portfolio of investments on the side of my trading. And a lot of people would always say to me, Anthony, you want to own gold? It's a hedge against central banks. It's you know, a hedge against inflation. It's a hedge against your stock market portfolio. Okay. 
As a trader, I used to go and look at that and look what gold did in the times where the S&P went down. Now, anybody could pull up this chart. Go look what it did in 08. Go look what it did in many times of when markets went down. It's not really a hedge. I look at gold now at this point after buying more gold when my equities were going down and losing even more. You start to say, you know what? This is BS. Uh, if it's going to work as a hedge, then it should actually hedge me. And I think that that term is just wrong. I, so I look at it and say, look at gold for what gold is. I trade and invest in gold for what it is. I, I think it has some hedges against some of these macro themes that I agree with. The hedge against other money I have, I don't look at it that way. So I look at Bitcoin and Ethereum in, in a similar way. Uh, I look at them and say they are very independent to what they are. Like I think Bitcoin and Ethereum shouldn't even be compared. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that's just me. I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not a crypto expert, but I look at them and say they're very different. I use ETH all the time. Uh, I'm buying ETH and and using it to buy other things. I don't do that with Bitcoin. I don't really do anything with my Bitcoin. It just kind of sits there. So I look at ETH and say I use this buy more of it, Anthony. I go back to I'm a simple guy. I look at things and say, what am I? I look at investments and say, what am I using them for? What could they generate an in income? Gold, to me, and comparing them, because since that's the conversation we're on, is going to be bought by a certain group of people that believe that gold is going to be something you'd rather own instead of the dollar in certain times of the market. That, that's the way I look at it. So I want to be long during those times. That's it. Uh, I'm not going to sell the gold and keep the gold. I'm going to buy it and sell it in futures. Uh, I have some physical too, but it's very little. And I always look at it and go, what am I going to do with this? I've lived through hurricanes. Try using gold. You can't. I mean, you know, I've had her living in South Florida. You're better off having commodities. Uh, You want water, um, oil, those things to me, those are things that you actually will use in a crisis. Uh, So that's also changed my perspective. Bitcoin and Ethereum. I own Bitcoin because I look at Bitcoin and say, I want to own this asset because I want to find a reason to use to use it. And I know that there's, I listen to a lot of podcasts, your podcast, I mean, a lot of the, the people that you speak with, and I'm still struggling to find reasons to use Bitcoin. So I keep a small core position of it, and I just say, maybe that starts to happen. I buy it at prices I like, and I kind of just forget about it. Unlike with Ethereum, I'm building a portfolio of things around Ethereum, NFTs, other things. I'm using ETH and some DeFi stuff that's actually kind of attached to Ethereum. You have to be in Ethereum to even buy these other cryptos. So I look at that and go, that makes sense to me. You know, like I said, I'm a simple guy. I'm, I, I've never been the smartest, but I look around and go, I'm using this. I'm actually using it. So I think that, that they're all independent and they're used in times when people feel that they need to own those assets and, and they have that play. And then that's when maybe I'll buy them for just that. But other than that, I use them for the reasons I think that I can get the most out of them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I know when I was on your show, we talked about, you know, cryptocurrency and it potentially being, you know, a hedge against inflation. So I think sort of going along with that, do you think the way, you know, and as the market went, yes, anyway, but up, sideways down, yeah. sideways again, maybe up a little bit and then sideways again, a lot of people started to sort of doubt that narrative who weren't paying attention to like what the Fed was actually saying, what the Fed was actually forecasting, just sort of going off of these community narratives of the dollars going to zero and, and whatnot. Um, and do you think, you know, these network effects are strong enough to develop maybe cryptocurrencies as this sort of inflationary hedge over time? Or do you think that just doesn't exist? Well, you and I were uh, talking about that in a unique time as well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we always have to put things into context. If you start yes. to look at certain times when inflation is hitting in certain prices of certain things are going to look different versus other times. And I looked at that time and I was actually very much with you. And I said, it's obvious Bitcoin is overtaking gold as a hedge against inflation, which I never really believed gold was not never, but we talked about my progression to changing that, that thinking. And I said, you know what? They must be jumping into this for that. It goes back to what do people want to buy when something is happening in a macro theme? And when it gets crowded, just like with every other asset, it doesn't matter what it is. People want their money back when they see that the dust has settled or it's not talked about as much. Maybe the dust hasn't settled within that macro theme, but people want their money back. The asset gets cracked. I mean, this is what we see over and over again. Do I think that that will ever be fixed over time to where it will become a true hedge against something? It's so hard to say because it's so much depends on what happens the next probably decade, right? Or maybe even less than that. What happens with 
everybody's been saying the dollar is going to be dead. There's all these different things. I'm not someone who believes that, but I think that the dollar will always have some um, value. I still think that the dollar is is not going away anytime soon. I don't think crypto is going to gain on it that quickly. But I do think that there will be a time, and maybe it's in my lifetime, maybe it isn't, that crypto is really the dominant against like a lot of the things it's built to do. I mean, right now I don't see I mean that crypto is doing exactly what it was originally intended to do. I think it's doing other things, which is great, but I don't think it's gotten to the point where it's actually functioning the way it was initially intended. Yeah, I think those are all really good points. And it, we should know when we talked. I think what was that April back in 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 late April maybe. I th- yeah, I think it was probably right around there. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's when you know, there was so much uncertainty, especially coming out with you know, was the Fed going to do anything? Is is all the yeah. deferred demand from the pandemic going to hit this summer? And there was so much talk about the summer and overheating, and you know, is inflation going to go to ten percent? Is it going to go to twenty percent? And there was so much speculation that you know we were going to see these crazy levels of inflation in the United States. And yes, we did see you know a higher level of inflation than we've seen in in quite some time. But I think you know a lot of that hype died down once we realize, oh, the Fed is starting to talk about how it's actually going to use its toolkit, and now it's clear that it probably will. And I think some people started to realize, like, uh, all right, the the central bank does have mechanisms in place to make sure the dollar doesn't completely go to zero. And of course, they have every incentive uh, to to make sure that it doesn't go to zero. Exactly. And so I think it, it was an interesting like wake up call for a lot of people that, all right, sure, something. And so that was my whole thing is that, you know, I still think, you know, cryptocurrencies can function as a hedge against inflation. But we have to, again, look at, you know, the, the period of time. So summertime, inflation didn't hit those crazy highs that we thought it was going to be. The future forecasts look a lot better looking at PCA at like 2% still over the next yeah. few years. And so for me, it was like, well, it makes sense that it didn't continue soaring or it, it went down even though temporarily over the summer inflation was higher because when you looked at the future, the long run, it was clear that inflation was going to settle down, whether or not that be, you know, a real adjustment or one that's artificially manufactured by the Fed. It's yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. <laughs> I know it's funny, like, you know, the Fed saying inflation is transitory and I think mm-hmm. that there will be ebbs and flows of it, but I don't think overall it's going to be. And that's what we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, like for me, thinking in my long-term play here, do I think inflation is here to stay? Yes, but I, do I think that we could come off periods where it looks like it's not? Yes, I mean, and that's when to me you buy those assets. That's like right now, I'm not buying copper on highs. Huh? I mean, maybe oil would be one I would. I'm long some gold, but there are certain things where I look at it and go, this is not going to be linear. Mm-hmm. That, that's just the way I feel about it. Yeah, and I think it's you know it's. Something that a lot of people sort of neglect is the fact that inflation, deflation, these things ebb and flow as time goes on, especially cyclically, you know, with summer spending being super high, everybody wanting to travel and now even the Delta variant sort of constraining some of that and making it so that people can't be as free with their resources, can't travel, you know, as much as they'd like. And I think when you look at the data and you look at inflation over time, it's clear that it's something that will always exist. <laughs> but that's exactly. the other part too that's super complicated is all these different measurements of it and all these different sort of comparisons. You can look at, you know, the price level, the purchasing power, or you can look at like the percent change and and this, that, the other thing that it gets so, you know, complicated and complex that I think a lot of these narratives get a little misguided because I would totally agree with you where I think we're going to see inflation for, you know, <laughs> for a while at least, probably, you know, the rest of our lives. But I, I don't, I don't think it's going to be this, you know, insane hyperinflation. I've written about this too, where we wouldn't want hyperinflation, right? Because it's just a symptom of inefficient institutions. It's Absolutely. not what causes them. And I don't think we would want to look like Venezuela or Zimbabwe. Um, and like you said, even about hurricanes, you know, in those times, and this is something that I had I'd written about a bit, where you actually see these real crises, you're not going to care about your Bitcoin. You're not going to care about your gold. You're going to no. care about your food and your water and totally. your guns and, you know, protecting your home and, and feeding your family. So, yeah, I mean, and there's true scarcity for those in those times. I mean, mm-hmm. true scarcity. You know, I mean, I know that we talk about with Bitcoin and one of the things that drives it, right, is the scarcity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at it, those things are true scarcity that are, that are human needs. Um, so I feel that, that that's why... You know, just going back to your point, I mean, those are the types of things that living through some of these events and just living through some investment times, I look at it and go, you smarten up. I mean, this business is a journey, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> well, none of us know it all, and we're all learning as we go, kind of like the Fed. Kind of learning. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting because in, in undergrad economics, I still remember one of the lectures that got me hooked on economics was uh, on the water diamonds paradox. That is, you know, it's this hypothetical situation where uh, you're in a desert and you don't have any water and you've been in the desert and you need water. And there's a guy, he comes by and he's willing to sell you water and he keeps raising the price because he knows how desperate you are and he knows that there's no water and he's the only one who has it. So it's super, super scarce. And the whole paradox is that, you know, water is more abundant than diamonds in the world. <laughs> but at this given situation, you know, the the water is more valuable than the diamonds because you value your life more than diamonds. So you would spend, you know, $40,000 on this water if you had it as opposed to, you know, whatever you would spend on a, on a, a diamond. And so okay. I think it's interesting because a lot of people don't don't think about these sorts of things and these these relative values and the fact that scarcity can change over time. Look at lumber. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say we were seeing it with commodities like lumber. <laughs> I mean, lumber is the perfect example. I mm -hmm. was doing some stuff on my house. I got quoted on some cabinets prior to a certain uh, time. Uh, I go back and look is you know doing little bits and pieces here. The price is, was crazy different. And you know you look at it. Do you want to get it done? And, you know, it, it, that's always a choice. But, I mean, at that point, that was – there was scarcity. The price was being driven up by it. So, Yeah, it was, it was definitely crazy to see over the summer with, oh. the, you know, going along with the housing boom. And, and it's funny. So now I guess the, the story, you know, everybody was saying, you know, Bitcoin's digital gold. And now people are saying Bitcoin is digital real estate. Udi, who I've had on the show, I think it claims to be the proponent of that. This morning, Jack C of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, um, commented, said Bitcoin is Bitcoin, and that's all it needs to be, <laughs> which was which was funny. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the times, the rare times, I probably agree with Jack. But I mean, I look at, it, I mean, Bitcoin is Bitcoin. I mean, why does it has to have to be? Why does everything have to have that classification? I remember there was a time where I was like, is it a commodity? Is it a store of value? What is it? Is it all of these different things? And I look at it, and as time goes by, and like I said, I bought Bitcoin, and I've had it, but what am I using it for? I mean, this is the biggest, one of the biggest issues I have with Bitcoin is I own it. I'm not nearly as bullish this uh, Bitcoin as I am Ethereum because of just what I do in my day-to-day -day life. Ethereum, I use all the time. Bitcoin, I don't, and I don't see any new innovation. You also have the richest guy in the world who bought it. Uh, you have Michael Saylor, who's bought billions of dollars of it. You've got all of this going for it. And I look at it and go, this asset to me right now is hard to hold and, and expect too much upside. It's it's just not, I'm not using it enough. We're not generating enough uses for it for, and for me to see where the next leg comes from. I don't know what you think about that, but it's just why it's why I'm not really into Bitcoin as much as I am NFT, Ethereum, DeFi. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I, for a while, I also kind of subscribed to those like, oh, maybe Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general have to be something, right? Do we want to say that they're all, you know, an inflation hedge or that they're the new digital gold or this or that or the other? And it was, and I, as like, I've sort of changed my opinion on that as, you know, time has gone on to where I see Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as these broader things like infrastructure, like, you know, um, just this general transactional ability, this ability to connect networks. And I, and I read about this this morning, actually, with, yep. you know, the infrastructure package that's coming through uh, Congress and how, you know, 10 years ago, the government wouldn't have said that Internet was infrastructure. But now yes. uh, broadband is one of the biggest components of this infrastructure bill. I think like $65 billion to be spent on, you know, uh, bringing broadband Internet across the country, especially to rural areas is uh, it was just crazy to see. And I think in general, uh, cryptocurrencies are all about the technology and that's what makes them so unique is that they can't fit into any of these other sort of constraints and that's what I talked about at the ETH conference I talked about um, how maybe we shouldn't want Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything to be digital gold because why would we want you know to follow the tracks of something that's failed before but that's a great point I you know I, I didn't read what you put out this morning I read your stuff a lot too you do a great <laughs> job with that but I, I completely agree with that. I mean, and that's that's a big reason why I'm holding on to Bitcoin at this point saying I'd love for the price to continue to go higher. I don't see it. Uh, I think that we are just going to be in this massive range for a period of time. And I look at it and go, start giving me more. I think it needs innovation and use. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it goes back to the point that you said. It's the technology. I mean, as at, at this point, the only way I could see it being used in my life is is a bartering mechanism, right? 
which I have not done a transaction in Bitcoin yet. I don't know if you, if you have. Have you done any transactions in Bitcoin? You mean to to purchase items? Yeah, to purchase like, something, you know, whatever. I mean, I think between just, friends and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, but I think for the most part, it's um something that I've I've held because I see it sort of being this like store of value that could uh, increase in value over time. From like the economic sort of game theory perspective, I always saw it having a really strong first mover advantage. So yeah. where Ethereum has all these great use cases and could function as this sort of like asset has like NFTs, all this other crazy stuff, and and a really well developed ecosystem. For me, I saw Bitcoin. Uh, potentially succeeding in being integrated into monetary regimes. But that's because I look at everything from a very aggregate, like macroeconomic development economics background since I came from that. So especially once it was, ado- and I mean, El Salvador adopting it doesn't really change much I and probably so. won't. I thought it was, I thought it was way too early um, for any country to adopt a, a sort of Bitcoin um, into their, you know, legal tender portfolio. But I think um, for me, the reason why I, I stay in Bitcoin isn't because of this like transactional thing. It's because I see it having this sort of like long-term value in, in this use uh, in monetary regimes. I was actually asked this at the Ethereum conference. Somebody said, just, you know, yeah. would you use, do you use Bitcoin to buy things? And I said, no, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't use Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee or, or anything as it stands, because I think that eventually, you know, right now, obviously we're in a bit of a, a complicated time period, but I think eventually it does have the potential to um, greatly rise in value. And I think become sort of its, its own Bitcoin standard that wouldn't look anything like a gold standard, but I agree with it. I think that's kind of what I'm saying is like, I have to see how this evolves with Bitcoin. I think overall, what you look at this, this, this environment, it's hard for me to be too aggressive with adding to it like I am with Ethereum because like I said, it, it's had everything going for it in terms of price. What more do the Bitcoin bulls want really? I mean, people calling for 100,000, 400,000. I'm not saying it won't get there. I don't know, but it's like you, you've had so much going your way already. You know, imagine if that happened with Ethereum. I don't know. I mean, it's, I think eventually it will, but right now it's not there, but it will happen, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of it's about time. And, you know, I've, I've talked to some people before and talked about, you know, trust in networks and, and trust in currencies and trust in assets in general. And, and with these cryptocurrencies, it really takes time just to establish these networks, prove that they're not Ponzi schemes and, you know, oh, yeah. and, and whatnot. So it's, it's crazy. And I guess on that note, so sort of switching gears back into like the, the technical side of things and the trading side of things, because that is your background. You've said before that technical analysis is an art, not a science. And I think that's super interesting because people on crypto Twitter love to talk about technical analysis, drawn on charts and whatnot. Um, I know you've explained this online and on your own um, podcast, but could you explain that a bit more maybe for the people back at home? Well, I look at it this way. If we took a chart right now and we put a chart up here for everybody to see, right? We all Mm -hmm. see the same thing. We gave them, let's just say we gave them horizontal lines, trend lines, and fibs. And we took a chart of whatever it was for a period of time. You would have... Let's just say there was a, a hundred people, right? Let's just say that's the number. You probably would have almost a hundred different ideas of what they thought the market would do in its path to wherever they thought it would go. Now, obviously, the path can only be up, down, sideways, whatever. But the way we look at it is we paint a picture in our mind and we look at it and we say a lot of what we go into to trading or, and when we look at charts is we already have a vision of what we see the market doing afterwards. And technical analysis, to me, is a lot on how we view a market. And it's supposed to be completely neutral to where it's like, okay, hey, draw this uptrend. If it holds this uptrend, yes. But where you draw it from where you draw it, okay? There's just so many things that go into it. So I look at it as an art and how I'm going to go about executing that path. I mean, I think that the if it was a science and we all had the same information then because everybody has the same tools then the markets they would all, it would be much more predictable but it isn't why doesn't it work that way well it's because i i go back to it i think that you need to have this artistic part of your brain uh engaged in when you look at charts and how you figure out how to use basic tools uh, and, and that's why you could have some traders trading using moving averages that do really well and other traders go they're they're a joke they don't work well, why is that? I mean, they are what they are. It's it's it, The art is in really the trading. The art is in the execution. 
So when I say technical analysis is an art, not a science, it's it's executing the technical analysis. It's the trading of the technical analysis that is more on the art side than versus the line itself, of course, is what it is. But how we use it and how we interpret it, I think that's where it, it, it differentiates all of us. Yeah, I think that's really great. And I thought it was so cool when I first saw you tweet about it and talk about it because I see something very similar in the world of economics, which is obviously, you know, very far different totally. from, from trading. But, you know, when you look at all these uh, economists who, you know, have these forecasts for inflation or for the Fed, fund rate, fu the Fed funds rate or for the interest rate or, or whatnot, it's very interesting to see how we all have the same tool set, which is, you know, looking at past data. And we're trying to use that to predict some point in the future. And everybody's answers look different, right? But you could say we all have the same tools. You know, we have the same regression tools. We have the same data sets. But everything is so different. And in economics, that's, you know, that theory that gets, you know, implemented in, into these regressions and all of this data analysis that, that tells you, you know, where we're going. And that's where the art sort of has to, to come in. But it's just so interesting because I think most things are looked at a little bit too much like a science because people want that like prestige, like, oh, you know, I'm doing this very technical scientific thing. And, and exactly. it makes people feel like it's it's um, makes people feel like they're more qualified or because I had that when I started in economics where I almost turned into an engineer because I just wanted to do, you know, machine learning and, and big data stuff. And I wanted to use these complicated models. And, you know, for me, it was like, well, if I have this data, then that means that I, I have to be, you know, doing something right because I'm looking at numbers and then that's, you know, that's the facts in this case. But in reality, it is the individual theories and the sort of the artistic effects that we put on these different, you know, tools. And these aren't like, like these aren't deviations from the truth, but it's, it's you know, exactly. the story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you great gave a great analogy. I mean, look at how many macro people out there that we can go and read right now that have the same tools will say inflation is transitory. Inflation's about to get really hot. We're heading for deflation. I mean, and none of these people are, I mean, they, they, none of them have any different information. They all have the same thing and they're all really smart. Why is that, that they all have a different outcome? It's because you go into everything and this goes back to, it's like technical analysis. If I pull up a chart right now and look at it, some people can see an uptrend. Some people can see the end of a trend. Some people will see sideways. Some people will see it differently. And when you take your tool and you do it, it's based upon that look. And if you don't believe that your brain is working that way, you're just kidding yourself. There's no, I mean, unless you're, unless it's so boxed in perfectly, like this is exactly how you draw every fib and you wait for every exact chart pattern to be the same, then maybe you can call it a science. But that isn't the case. I've never seen a chart look exactly the same. They look similar. And depending, well, going back to coming out of context, where do we come from? What's happening? There's too many things that go into it, I think, to say that it is a science. But yet so many people say that my stuff is the best. <laughs> you know, I look at that and I'm always like, this is why I don't put a ton of charts out there because I could tell you and show you exactly what I think. What does that mean? Yeah, so I was right. So I was wrong. I mean, what are you getting from that? Nothing. I mean, you, you don't understand what my thought process was going into that. And I think that's what really the difference is. Yeah, I think that's interesting because it, it follows a similar nature in economics where you can put out all the data, but what does that mean without the theory and, exactly. and the narratives? It's, you know, just, it's just a bunch of numbers, but oh. you also have an ebook called trading is a journey to oneself. I am not a trader. Um, I would, I, I'm just not good at that sort of stuff. So I, I know to stick to my lane in economics though. Specialization <laughs> is key as we all know from Ronald Coase. Um, but you focus on some of your, the instincts you've learned over the years as a trader. And so could you talk a bit about maybe these instincts and which ones you found to be the most important? Well, I, first of all, I, every trader says that they have a set of rules. And when I first started to trade in my career, I was surrounded by some of the best traders in the world. I was in the S&P 500 pit in the mid-90s. We were the center of the universe, we'll call it. That's what they called it, a lot of the traders of the S&P 500 because there was no other place to trade it. SPY didn't exist. All these things didn't exist, the mini S&P. And... What I learned was, was that all of these traders had instincts for their, their reactions to the market, their, their actionable trading, but they all had rules for a strategy. So what I got wrong was I was only looking at the rules based in a trading type of mindset, meaning that when I sit down to trade, 
I would have the, all the rules from Paul Tudor Jones. What's his trading rules? And what I didn't realize was that his trading rules were based upon his strategy rules, what he looks for, why he takes a trade. But at the time of trading, at the time of execution, you need to have certain instincts. When to be aggressive, when not to be aggressive, when to stop. Maybe you just shouldn't be trading at this point. Uh, certain things that just have to be instinctual. Uh, times you wake up in the morning as a, as a trader, you say you're not a trader, but as traders, we have to go in and we have to be mentally sharp. We have to be, all these things have to be really clicking for us to do well. I look at it as the Super Bowl every day. It's not really the case, but I look at it that way because the minute you're off your game, you're done. So you have to instinctually know where you are as a person, where you are mentally, uh, and what's going on in the market. They're, 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 these are things that you can't write on paper. They have to be part of your thinking. So when I started getting away from, I need to have rules in my trading and have rules for a strategy, because that absolutely you need. I have rules for my strategy. My strategy is rules-based. But my trading and the way I go about executing it, kind of going back to the art of things, is about where I am on an emotional, mental, physical uh, place. A lot of that has to do with that. And you ask me, what are some of the things that I think are, I don't know if you said the most important or the things that I've taken away from my instincts and, and that I've carried into crypto is instinctually, I know, I look at, I, I've allowed myself, when I look at my strategy and when I look at crypto, I say, you can't chase things. I don't care what the chart says. It, the, the volatility is too high. goes back to the rules of my strategy. And when it gets there, I have to go through my execution and instinctually know that at these moments, I need to be aggressive. But those are hard times. Like in the S&P, I can be aggressive on a rally if price is holding. It's very different than with crypto. So instinctually, I had to be like, okay, you need to start getting aggressive when things are actually countering in this aspect of your strategy so it really comes down to where it's like like i said it's just separating a rules from a strategy and building instincts in to your trading um and and because trading as i said the name of the ebook is trading is a journey of oneself and i just feel that i don't have time in the heat of a moment to look at a rule when i'm about to point and click every one of us is on an emotional uh, moment, whether people think so or not, when you're about to buy or sell something, period. I mean, I don't, I don't see how that's not a part of your, you're about to actually buy something or sell something. That's, that's an emotional experience. I don't care how many times I've done it and I've done it a lot. Uh, it, so I have to say to yourself, recognize where I am instinctually and understand these situations. And when you start to look around, I mean, uh, and certain markets are happening, I go, stay away from that. Now's the time to step in. Feeling good, sharp, look at the way things are. You just make, it's, it's, it's just about being instinctual. I, 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 it's one of those things where I know you're not a trader, but I, I think you understand that when you go to do, you've bought crypto, you've sold mm -hmm. crypto, right? When you're doing it in that moment, you have your rules, but when you sit down there, all of a sudden it's kind of like you become kind of numb to the rules of the strategy and you now have to lean on something that's instinctual in your body to, to execute those trades. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and like you said, I'm not a trader, but I, I have, you know, obviously I own crypto for the investments. And, and for me, it was interesting, too, because I see in the crypto space a lot of FOMO and a lot of fear and people panicking, panic selling the bottom or you know panic buying the top. Or, you know, you see all of these people, you know, blowing up their accounts or or just making really big mistakes because they they panic a lot. And so for me, you know, OK, I invest in it and, you know, I focus on economic stuff, focus on the PhD, whatever. My whole you know goal with Crypto has never actually been to make money because I came from this development background, right? So yeah. making money was just this awesome part of it where I was like, oh, great. I can, you know, <laughs> I can make money while I, while I see, uh, while I feel like I'm doing something good for, you know, the future or I'm investing in the future, right? Uh, and so it's interesting because when I first started, I kind of compared it to actually riding horses, right? So when you're riding a horse, you don't have much control over what it does <laughs> and exactly. its natural instincts. And horses get scared a lot for people who aren't aware of the nature of horses but when you're riding around at a show sometimes something happens you know a plant knocks over and the horse goes crazy and the the instinct for most people right is to like just immediately react without thinking and sort of like pull back or you know abandon ship or exactly. whatever but my you know when i rode the reason why i was able to you know stay on or ride through it or whatever is because it's you have to separate from that sort of like emotional fear instinct and just sort of ride through it right so it's like you have to stay calm 
while you're on the horse in order to not make the situation a lot worse or, or to not mess something up or to go flying off. Um, and so for me, when crypto got crazy, I was like, well, you know, my instant reaction was like, oh, the number's going down in my portfolio. That doesn't look so pretty. Maybe I should sell. But because, and again, this is because I'm coming from this like long term, I want to hold it for the long run. When I saw that, I thought, you know, I think I'm going to stay. And of course, in some instances, I, I'd sold some Ethereum when it, uh, when it tanked so I could buy back in it and whatnot. But I think a lot of times it is important to rely on these instincts and, and sort of separate out when you're just like being too emotional <laughs> about it. Oh, totally. I mean, the horse analogy is so perfect because you know before you, let's put it this way. You learn how to ride a horse. You know that mm-hmm. you have the skill set. We know this. Before you get on a horse, is there certain times where maybe you say, you know what, I'm not mentally in the right place. I shouldn't be on this horse. The horse can probably feel it. Or like oh, you yeah. said, in that moment, you're getting up there. That to me is recognition of where you are. That's, that's great self-awareness you have. And that comes with experience. So what I feel is that traders make this assumption that they're going to build rules for a trading and a strategy. When they start to trade, all of a sudden, they're so fixated on it that they can't remember the rule and it becomes distracting. So I said, build in- if you think of it as an instinct, then at the time, you will be more self-aware and better in that moment to fix it. I mean, that's the difference. And, and in trading or investing, I don't care how long or who you are, when you're about to do this, it is an emotional move. That's it. There is nothing more to say about it. And if it goes right away, uh, your way or against you, you feel something. That is reality. So you need to build an instincts to know how to deal with those situations. And that's why I started working towards that because I needed to be equipped with that. Uh, I'm type A kind of. Um, so I needed to know, I said, look, it, I, you, you can't put rules in, but I need to structure how I need to think in these times, instincts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a great point too, because there are times of course, where, you know, I had shows or, you know, even just random like hacks in the field where I'd go to eat on the horse and I'd think, eh, I'm not so sure that I should do this. And there are times when I've gone against that and, and gotten on the horse anyway and had accidents happen See. because like, for example, I got flipped on over the summer in a field. I remember that. I know. Yeah. And I, I remember getting on and I thought maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe it's just, you know, that gut instinct where I was like, mm, something feels a little funky. The horse is acting a little weird. I'm not really on my game. And look what happened. I got flipped on. And, and the totally. same thing has happened to me in, you know, even just investing in, in buying crypto where I'm like, oh, like something's telling me I should sell or something's telling me that I should buy this now. And, you know, I don't listen to my gut instinct. I listen to this sort of like manufactured fear that people have around investments and money and, and whatnot. And it's, it's definitely very interesting. <laughs> like I said, we all have them. If we don't embrace the fact that we have emotions involved in everything that we do, then we're, we're losing sight of what's actually happening right in front of us and we can't get better. I mean, I fought this. People say that emotions aren't involved in trading. Nonsense. I mean, it's just not true. I mean, it, everything we do is an emotional, um, is, is, emotions are involved in it. So why not embrace it and find a way to use that as your advantage versus fighting it? I mean, that, that's the way I look at it is that I want the path of least resistance, not the path of resistance. Yeah. And so, well, actually speaking on the, the path of resistance, <laughs> this actually kind of goes along with the topic I wanted to mention earlier, but forgot about until just now, uh, briefly on the Federal Reserve. So usually I am answering questions about the Fed, whether or not I want to. I originally studied as a microeconomist. I also studied macroeconomics, but I ended up, you know, taking this sort of a Fed dissection route when I got into crypto. So, uh, but I talk a lot about macroeconomic issues in general and uh, just sort of the general direction of the economy, the global economy, whatnot. But I get a lot of questions about, you know, markets. And so I think a lot of people, um, when the Fed minutes came out last month and showed some hawkish sentiment, talked about the Fed tightening maybe in the near future, starting tapering as soon as Q4. Um, do you think you'd give us a little bit of an overview maybe on, on what you took from the, FO, the latest FOMC release and, and sort of how you see tapering and interest rate increases affecting the markets? First of all, I, it's hard for me to believe that they're actually going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that I'm there yet. So I look at it as the one thing about the Fed that I've learned over the years, at least with my trading and my investing, is it's hard to take them for what they say that they're going to do. <laughs> right? So it, every time I look at what the Fed says they're going to do, I mean, the dot plot's a perfect example. How long did they use that for? Did they ever really follow it? I'm not really sure that they did. Uh, I'm not... Uh, somebody who follows so closely as to what that is, but I, I followed it for a little bit and I'm like, this is a joke. So 
I think that the Fed does not know how it's going to end. So therefore, my thinking with the Fed is simple, is that you can't go off of what they say they're going to do. You have to go off of what they do. And that's very difficult. So I have, once again, in my longer-term portfolio, I am not as worried about what the Fed will do because I have big-picture stops put in and a lot of the stuff. And as a trader... I'm in and out around what these events will be. I would much rather react to what they do than try and figure out in my market planning of what they're going to do and what market I should be in. I just think it's it's a fool's errand because, once again, it could be, let's just say that they started to, to taper or something were to happen then. Where would the market be at that point? L let's just say that the market is much lower. Uh, and, and bonds have already sold off. It, it could be the opposite at that moment of what actually happens. Maybe initial move, and then I, so it's one of those things where I I don't look at investments or trading too much on what the Fed says they're going to do anymore versus what they actually do. And I'd rather be late than early and wrong. That's just the way I feel about it. So I don't. I, Going off of what they say, I look at it and go, <laughs> okay, let's see. I don't believe you. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's funny because um, even within the Fed, and I read about this a few weeks ago too, the Fed doesn't know what it wants within the Fed. The dot plot's all over the place. If you look at the dot totally. plot, it's all over the place because everybody has a different opinion. And even when it comes to tapering, you know, there's some some um, Fed governors who think that you know we should start with the tapering of mortgage-backed securities first before going into treasury bonds and and. Powell came out and said, no, we're not going to do that. And I don't speak for the entire Fed because, you know, we all have to make the decision, but no, we're not going to do that. And it's just, it's funny to see, you know, all of this confusion and chaos that happens within the Fed and for them to try to come out as this united front with like, this is the decision that we're making or we're, you know, even Powell, he said, you know, you can call this a couple months ago, the talking about talking about it meeting. But then we had the talking about it, talking about doing it again talk. And it's like, it's just this never ending cycle of, well, we're going to keep talking about it. And I think he's garnered a lot of hype around it because he said, you know, oh, don't worry, I'll give you all plenty of time in order to not disturb the markets was his whole claim, you know, before tapering begins or before, you know, interest rate hikes begin. Exactly. But what does that even, you know, how much is a lot of time and when are we not going to be talking about it anymore? <laughs> so I don't want to, you know, that's why I mean, I don't want to, you know, hurt my brain by trying to think about what they're trying to do and make any decisions based upon that. I just continue to look at what the tape is showing me and certain things and that I feel that I... I mean, my positions right now, I mean, I'm always long the S&P pretty much. It's uh, it's in my long-term portfolio, and I I'll, I will trade it um, when the situation is right. I mean, if something like that were to happen, the S&P would be a great market for traders to trade both sides. I'm long a little bit of gold uh, because I do believe that gold will work in inflation or uh, a possible time where we start to see deflation. Uh I do believe that there is some macro behind gold to potentially go up. I still believe there is a case for that. Uh, and, and like I said, I'm in a lot of crypto stuff that I think at the end of the day, how much is the Fed going to impact that? Obviously, if the market gets cracked or if there's a major change in interest rates, then you're going to see probably spill over into crypto. It, it's just going to happen. But from where and you know where could ETH be at that point? I mean, will ETH be at 4,000 there? Will it be at 1,000? I mean, I, that that this is why it's so... During these times in between when they talk, I, I feel like people spend too much tr time trying to figure out what they're going to do versus like, okay, what's here now? What is working? And try to focus some of my energy on that. And I, like I said, I'd rather be late. And this is, goes back to almost an instinctual thing. Would you rather be late and right than early and wrong? I mean, this is money. I, I want to make money. So I'd rather be late and right. Because I can't predict what these people are going to do or where we're going to be. So I got to just trade what's in front of me for now. Yeah, it's funny, too, because Powell came out and said a, a couple months ago, you know, that the dot plot is not a great indicator of what the Fed will I, do. I know. I heard, he said that. I heard he him said say it himself. that. Yeah. And he said there's no great indicator. And I remember when I was looking at that stuff, it, it's true that the only way you can look at what the Fed might potentially do is by looking at the economy, not the Fed, not what the Fed's saying, but looking at what's actually happening in the economy and what these targets are and, and how we're actually moving. Are we actually keeping up with growth? Are we overheating? Are that we stuff matters. Exactly. Yeah. 
And so I've tried, you know, really hard with my newsletter and, and whatnot and through the podcast to sort of focus on, well, okay, here's what the Fed said. And yes, everybody's freaking out about it. And here's what Powell said. And oh, yada, yada, yada. But here's what the economy is actually doing. And here's what we know that they're looking for in terms of recovery and growth and, and whatnot. And here's what's important to actually look at in terms of the future. Because obviously everything that happens in the macro economy isn't just, you know, what the, it doesn't just affect what the Fed's going to do. It affects the, the markets too. But yeah, I think that's a great point because the Fed likes to talk a lot. <laughs> they do. I mean, and look at what you said earlier about measuring different ways to measure inflation. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that the Fed uses, you know, core PCE. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we look at that and say, okay, I, I may think that that's wrong. I, I personally don't. I'm not somebody who'd be the best judge of what that, what, what that number is. Uh, and the little research I've done, I've seen it to be an okay number. But so many people say it's a garbage number. Well, it doesn't matter what you think. That's what the Fed thinks. Mm-hmm. So those things I pay attention to. Because on those data points, how does the market react to it going forward? That's when it starts to feel to me like the Fed, I'm tuned in more to what they are actually looking at to make the decisions. You do a great job at this. A few other people I read do a great job at that. Because like you said, you have to differentiate the two because that's where the true trade and investment comes. It doesn't come off of exactly what the Fed says because then it would just be like, okay, I know that they're, let's just say, you know, they're tapering on this day. Well, okay, well, fine. I mean, you know, short a bunch of bonds. Okay, it's easy. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's so much that happens in between there, so... Yeah, and for a while it was labor. You know, the Fed's super, super, and they still are focused on labor. Very, very, you know, labor heavy. Biden's also very labor heavy, all worried about, you know, labor. And so then we saw the June employment numbers where it's like, okay, we had this crazy, crazy growth in jobs, but the labor pool expanded and, oh, unemployment went up too. And so I think there was a lot of like chaos and confusion around that where it was like, well, they're all targeting this unemployment rate. And at first it was targeting the unemployment rate and this job growth, but then the jobs grew and unemployment marginally bumped up. And it's just an interesting sort of thing to work through because the Fed, I don't even think, knows what they're doing at this point. And they don't even know how they're going to work through this at this point because I don't think most people were expecting to see this, you know, huge like 800,000, you know, job addition accompanied by, a, you know, 0.1% increase in unemployment. So it's hard because even these little indicators change all the time. And I think they're all important to watch, which can get kind of tricky for like the everyday person. And then we mentioned lockdowns earlier. This mm-hmm. goes back to what happens if that happens. I mean, there's these these things in between now and whenever they decide they say they're going to do whatever, there is so many things that I think will have a greater impact on the market uh, than that. And like you said, some of those data points now become very interesting. And we'll, you know, we'll see. I mean, the data points that the Fed is watching to me is probably what I get the most of when I listen to the Fed. And that mm-hmm. I want to know. Yeah, and it's it's too you know even with labor, it, the leading sectors were you know leisure, hospitality, transportation. You saw aviation, you know, <laughs> no pun intended, taking yeah. off again. Yeah. And you know now even with these international restrictions and closures, it's something we're going to start seeing slow again. Aside from you know it's seasonally adjusting back to you know fall not being as busy. Um, so I think definitely a lot to watch coming out of yep. the Fed. <laughs> totally. But um, wrapping up, just the last question for you. So what? It's a pretty general question, but what do you think is the best piece of trading advice that you've ever received? Well, there's there's actually two parts to this. Uh, it was from two different people, and it was me coming at a time where I needed to hear something, and it wasn't necessarily about trading. Uh, it was about where I was in my journey as a trader, coming off of blowing out accounts and complaining to one of my mentors who had actually lent me money at the time. And I said, you know what? I, I said, this is just, this is brutal. I mean, I feel like it's, you know, I, I hear the stats, you know, all these people, you know, it was something at the time was like 95% or 99% of the people that trade um, lose money. And, and I was saying something along those lines. And he said to me, he goes, then learn how to be the 1%. And it was like, okay. Well, he's like, basically telling me, figure it out. It's tough for everybody. You think you're the only one? Figure it out. And here's a guy who's made millions of dollars, loaned me money, and he just said to me, he's like, you know, that's at that time I needed to hear that because it is a journey of oneself. We talked about the, the art, uh, technical analysis and art. When you look at everything that we do as an investor, we're all doing it from the, these inner biases that we have and we draw conclusions from all this different work and we, we try to figure out what's the best way to go about doing that. Because we all want to make money at the end of the day. And at the same time, I remember saying to my dad, you know, dad, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to make money doing this. I said, this just feels like it's just so impossible. 
He goes, well, if Tone, if you really love to do it, figure it out. And that's my dad's answer for everything, right? Oh, I can't do this. You'll figure it out. And you do, right? And that's great advice because it's like, look it, I'm behind you, but you got to do it. And that's the best piece of trading advice I ever got because from my mentor to my father saying to me, just figure it out, Anthony. If you want to do this, find a way to make it happen. And what I learned is that you never truly figure it out and you have to constantly work at it because you have this in your mind when you come into trading or in investing. I'm going to buy this and you only think about the outcome. I'm going to make money. And you forget about what it takes to do that. I know that's how I was. I just wanted the money. And I thought that I'm, I have the job. I'm a member of the exchange. I can go and trade. It just wasn't that. So I needed the kick in the butt to do that. And that was the best piece of trading advice I ever got. And to this day, I still think about it because I'm like, look, when I start to struggle, I go, figure it out, buddy. Make it happen. What's going on around you? Take a step back and get better. I think that's great advice personally, also because I've heard it a lot in the PhD program. You ask a professor, you know, what the heck do I do? And he says, figure it out. <laughs> so right? definitely resonate with that. And it's true. Sometimes you do have to just rough it out if you really want it and literally figure it out. There's, there's nothing else you can do, but just mess with it until you get it. So totally. And it's and fantastic it's, advice. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like at certain times you sit there and you're, you know, you talk about, you know, I, I was complaining to the two guys that. Uh, you know, my dad supporting me at home. I'm a young guy. My mentor who's loaning me money, he's like, listen, I, you, know, you can complain all you want. Go do it. And, and sometimes we just need that as people. You know, mm -hmm. we get in a, you know, we get in a doldrum and we're just burnt out and we feel like it can't be done. And then you get re-energized because somebody's going, hey, man, you, if you want it, get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's very true. Something I definitely resonate with as well. But thanks so much for coming on. I think we had a great talk. Hopefully everybody learned a lot. I know I always learn a lot when I listen to your podcast, so I'm very happy to have you on the show. Again, Anthony is the host of Futures Radio Show, the author of Trading is a Journey to Oneself. Um, but where else can people find you online? Uh, at, on Twitter, at Anthony Crudelli, and my website, anthonycrudelli.com. Uh, check me out there. Podcast, everything is on there. And I have to say, I love that you're starting to do this podcast. It's great. I've been tuning into it. And uh, thank you for having me on your show. And I look forward to us having more conversations in the future. Thanks so much.